With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And welcome in, everybody. I know that it's been quite some time since I actually had a show on, and I apologize for that. Uh, just to give you kind of an update before we get into the meat and potatoes, because we do have lots of big, important stuff to come to you. That's the reason that we're doing an episode tonight with Mo Brooks, with a representative who recently announced a Senate run here in the state of Alabama. We are getting to that. But just for the fans, wanted to give you a quick update on what's going on behind the scenes here at Tactics. So two things. First of all, and this is uh, the big one, I've been going through grad school recently. I'm in the master's program here at Faulkner University to get my master's in theology and philosophy. And I'm doing that, hopefully getting into the track for my doctorate. So I've been doing that kind of behind the scenes. But as you can imagine, that's an awful lot of work. And so I've got my job at Faulkner, I have my graduate degree, it doesn't leave a lot of time for the radio show. And I hate that, and I, I hate that I don't have this outlet, I hate that I don't get to meet with you guys every single day like I used to, and I had to go down to the, the two days a week show, and, and now I'm having to scale back even more. And uh, guys, I'd, I'd love to do this every single day, but it just it takes a ton of time, a ton of preparation, the video production, getting the clips together, it just... It takes all my time. And with graduate school, graduate school takes all my time, and I just don't have the time to do it. So I'll try to get to where I'm, I'm comfortable doing, you know, maybe a show a week or something. And, and one thing that you're going to see some changes in the program from here going forward is I'm probably going to have to rely very heavily on interviews if I even get an episode out every week. And so I apologize for that. I'll do the best that I can to make sure that I'm bringing you good content. But my school comes first, because if I, I try to make the show my priority and just kind of do graduate school on the side, that's not going to work, because, you know, there's probably super geniuses out there that can do that, but I'm not one of them. I think if you've watched my show, you realize this. But <laughs> anyway... So that's going to be my primary focus, and I know a lot of people have asked questions about it, about why I haven't been doing the show, why I've been gone. That's why. And I would love to be able to do the show as often as I can. If, if you want ways to uh, support me, the best thing that you can do is subscribe to the channel, like my videos, get the views up. Now, that won't help me have any more time, but if I can get support for the show there's a chance that I maybe could hire somebody to help me out with stuff. I would still be doing all the hosting stuff, but all the, the other stuff that takes up all my time, the video production, that kind of thing, that's how it boosts my ability to be able to do stuff like this. And so if you want more content, that's the quickest way to do it, is to like this channel, subscribe to it. And uh, if you want to give your support that way, that's the biggest way that you can help the channel and help it grow and, and hopefully produce more conservative content, which, you know, will get the message out there. So thank you so much for supporting me over this time and being with me. It is great to be back with every single one of you. And one other thing that you may notice, too, uh, you may see over here in the, uh, the corner the Not Ashamed Media logo. That's because we're no longer with 1440, you know, 
there's no hard feelings with me and the people at Cumulus Montgomery. I, I'm still friends with a lot of them. I'm still buddies with Rick. We're on good terms. Uh, so far as I know, Kevin's not mad at me right now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a personal thing. They've just, they've lost a ridiculous amount of their revenue because of everything that happened with the, the virus. Like half the staff over there has left. Uh, several of my bosses, people that were paid a lot more than me, people that were part-timers like I was, about half the staff is gone. And that's primarily just because all radio stations have been hit really hard with this thing because when businesses can't open, there's not a lot of reason to advertise. And even the ones that were open, advertising is one of the things that goes first when they have to look at the budget and figure out a way to keep afloat. And so I understand it. I get it. There's no hard feelings between me and Cumulus as far as that goes, but I'm no longer with 1440. I'm, I'm with Not Ashamed Media. And that's a, a company that I've put together myself. And, you know, we, we're going to be doing other things as well, not just this show, but you've already seen kind of the preliminary stages with that, with uh, some other shows that we've been kind of toying around with the idea of doing, like the Geek End, uh, like some of the video game tournaments we've done, and also some video production that we'll be doing in the future for some private organizations. I'm actually working on something for the Alabama FFA Association and doing some of their video production right now. We'll see where that goes. If you do have any interest, you can always get in contact with me at tacticsradio at gmail.com. That's always an option if you're interested in, in doing a video production project and, and you know supporting me that way also helps the show. It helps me have a little bit more money to spend things on things like video production and improving the quality of the show as well. So I ramble on much longer than I intended to, but that's just kind of what's going on in the background of the show. Now let's actually get into the news of the day. I would love to sit here for like five hours and just go through all of the news that we've missed over the past. It's been about two months, a little over two months since we last had a show because it was the, the first week in January. And now March is almost over. So it's, it's actually been close to three months, about two and a half months. So, you know, we, we've missed a lot. We've missed Meemaw with the, the mask mandate. We've missed uh, all the stuff that was going on with the, the new White House coming in. We've missed a lot of things. But we do have a really big story here for you tonight, and it just so happened that the, the person whom this story centers around, Mo Brooks, the representative from the 5th District of the state of Alabama, happened to be in town the other day. And because of that, we were able to catch up with him. And by the way, I would really like to thank Becky Gerritsen. You might know her as Tea Party Becky. She helped put all of this stuff together, and she invited me to the event that he was having, which uh, it was great to meet him. We wound up not being able to do an interview there, which frankly, kind of probably wound up being for the best because we just met up later and did the interview in Becky's house. And uh, incredibly gracious of her to open up her home to us and, and try to work all of this out so we can get the message out there. But yeah, Mo, Mo Brooks, fantastic representative, has a stellar voting record, very conservative. And one of the things that I like about him that I'll allude to in this interview that we're about to play with him is not only is he good at voting, he's also good at getting the message out and explaining to people why he votes the way that he does. He's not just voting the right way. He's telling people why he's voting this way. He's a great advocate for conservative values. And um, as far as votes go, you've got your, your guys like Gary Palmer, who I think a lot of. He's the most conservative member of the House from the state of Alabama, even slightly more conservative than Mo Brooks, just based on his voting record. I mean, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, and I understand that. But 
you know, the thing about Gary Palmer is, though he votes very conservatively, he doesn't get a lot of spotlight. He's not out there making the case for why his ideas are good, why the conservative worldview is the correct one. And so nothing against Gary Palmer. Love having him in the House. Keep him there as long as we can. But for a Senate, he's going to be, uh, Mo Brooks is going to be the better choice for that because he is able to go out there and make the case and be a little bit more in the spotlight, which I think Mo Brooks is a little more comfortable with. And so because of that, he launched his Senate campaign just a couple days ago. In fact, I believe it was Monday night, if I'm not mistaken. So he launched his campaign Monday night for the Senate, and we were able to catch up with the representatives. So without further ado, let's go ahead and watch that interview. All right, and welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. As you can see, we have a very special guest with us this evening, representative from District 5 of the great state of Alabama, Congressman Mo Brooks. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. All right, so I wanted to ask you several different things. Of course, you launched your Senate campaign just the other night, and we're very excited about that. You've done that once before, trying to uh, get the seat that was eventually taken by Doug Jones. And that's actually kind of where I wanted to start us out tonight, because last time in that primary, there were millions of dollars sunk into trying to specifically torpedo you. About 15 million. Right. Um, I, I heard 13, and you know, I, I heard 15, and... Regardless, it was a lot of money. It was. And it was specifically targeted at painting you as an anti-Trump, uh, I don't even know what to say it, well, just it was a, a heretic, it, I guess. Is the they best were way trying to, to paint me as anti-Trump. Right. And I was the only candidate in the race who had actually contributed to help Donald Trump win the election. Right. They were trying to portray me as Nancy Pelosi's best friend, which of course right. which is, is pretty defamatory in a Republican primary. They're trying to portray me as being opposed to the Second Amendment right to bear arms when mm -hmm. I've got a straight A grade with the National Rifle Association and Gun Owners of America. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to portray me as being anti-military when I'm the home for one of the most important military bases in the United States at Redstone Arsenal that I've helped expand as we try to do the things that are necessary to enable our warfighters to prevail. You know, and I hate to say it, but it was incredibly effective. I remember I was sitting in a auto repair shop, the waiting room, and nobody knows who I am because I'm a radio guy, not a video guy. I do video now, but back then I just did radio, so no one recognized me. I was just sitting there minding my own business, and I heard they had a, a local news thing on, and they ran one of those ads that was paid for by Mitch McConnell. And one of the things that it said was basically trying to make the case that you were anti-Trump, and I remember the guy said... Well, I don't know if I want to vote for Luther or Roy Moore, but I know one thing, I'm not voting for that guy. And I, I kind of already knew that being in politics, but it was like, it's, it amazed me how effective those things were when, as you just pointed out, there wasn't a lick of truth to any of it. Well, it had no effect whatsoever in the parts of the state where people know me, right? which is the northern tier of the state of Alabama. But in the southern tier of the state of Alabama, where people don't know me, and that's the only impression people have, it does have an effect. Now, right. this time around and since then, I've been endorsed not once but twice by Donald Trump uh, for election in 2018 to Congress and 2020 uh, for Congress. Very strong words in my favor by President Trump. And then I was asked by President Trump's team to be co-chair of the Alabama re-election campaign for Donald Trump. We've had an excellent working relationship, but unless the people know that, then they don't know when you're 
have a candidate like myself who is being mm-hmm. lied about as Mitch McConnell did so effectively in the 2017 race. Well, that's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because um, you're going to be running a, a statewide race, obviously, again, and, and that is going to be uh, a little bit more of a challenge, because like you said, up in your district, they love you because they know you and they pay attention, and, and they didn't really know you as well the first time you started making headway here. Do you see a repeat of that, or do you think now, because of everything that went on with you being like on the literally on the front lines in the House... Um, do you think that that makes a difference, that people, because of that, are going to know you and it'll be harder for them to repeat the same attack and it to be as effective? Well, if they launch the same Mo Brooks doesn't like Donald Trump attack that they uh, successfully launched in 2017, it's going to fall on deaf ears, but to the extent it doesn't, we're going to have a lot more firepower this go-around than I had in 2017 with which to respond with. Mm-hmm. And you've got one endorsement by Donald Trump, a second endorsement by Donald Trump in 2020, perhaps, who knows, a third endorsement uh, in this Senate race. Good you've day. also got that I was co-chair of his campaign at his request. Uh, I spoke at the Ellipse, according to the White House political director, at Donald Trump's request. Uh, Donald Trump and I have talked in the last four weeks three times where he's called me and we've had good discussions about this Senate race. Right. Um, I think we've got pretty good rebuttal. No, I would say so. And so I look forward to any of my opponents trying to make that kind of case because it's going to fall miserably on its face. And when that happens, that will actually enhance my stature with voters and, of course, hurt whoever is behind those kinds of malicious and false attacks. Well, now, I certainly hope that that winds up being the case because I don't know if I ever told you this, but you were my first pick in that primary. Like I I supported you very early on um, as a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, But one thing that I did want to ask about that is if you become senator, you have to work with Mitch McConnell. Is that going to be a problem considering how much money he spent trying to torpedo you? Or do you think that you'll be able to to make some headway in that area? Well, in politics, it's often said that politics makes strange bedfellows. And what that really means is you wouldn't anticipate two, two or more people being able to work together because of past fights. If you're a professional at this then what you're supposed to do is put those past fights behind you so that when there's common ground, you can work together. So I'm sure that to the extent that Mitch McConnell wants to advocate excuse me, advocate uh, conservative, principled positions, I'm going to be all on board. But if he's going to want to cave in to socialist demands, I'm going to be in adamant opposition. So it's really going to depend on whether I am persuaded that the position I'm being asked to take protects and promotes the foundational principles that have combined to make America the greatest nation in world history. If so, we're going to be allies and we're going to be hand in glove trying to make sure that those foundational principles are protected and promoted. On the other hand, if I perceive that what I'm being asked to do undermines those foundational principles that have combined to make America the greatest nation in world history, well, I'm going to be fighting them. But that's the way it should be. We each have our own belief system, Um, some public policy positions. uh, Sometimes they're close, sometimes they're different. Mm -hmm. And you need to advocate on behalf of the public policy positions that you believe in the best interests of your country. And that's what I'm going to do. So I'm not going to control my actions based on what Mitch McConnell or even Chuck Schumer Mm -hmm. may do. I'm going to control my actions based on what is the issue before me, And is it going to help America or hurt America? And that will determine whether I'm going to support or fight what is in front of me. That will also determine who my allies 
our enemies may be on that particular bill. When you get to another bill, mm-hmm. it's a new ball game. See, I don't think that's the way that politics works in 2020. You can't just make decisions based on whether or not you agree with the policy. It's supposed to be personal. Do you, you understand that, right? Yeah, I don't make public policy decisions based on personalities. If you That's refreshing. If you devolve to that level, then you're, you should not be in office because you're not doing what your city, your county, your state, or your federal government needs you to do. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I kind of go along with the philosophy that Abraham Lincoln espoused, which is, I will stand with any man when he is right. There you go. But uh, one other thing that I did want to ask you, too, because, of course, we were talking earlier uh, at a meeting that happened uh, earlier today, and you were talking about your experience with what happened with the shooting at the the baseball field with a, a Bernie Sanders supporter tried to murder a tenth of Congress. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about specifically is... I think that's incredibly relevant considering what's happened the past 48 hours with the two mass shootings that have happened and President Joe Biden coming out and actually saying that basically we don't even have to wait for the details. The details are irrelevant. They don't matter to this. I don't have to wait. His exact quote was uh, not one more minute to move forward on gun control policy and try to ban assault weapons and so on and so forth. And so... uh, a, what can you do in the House, or B, what will you do if, if you're in the Senate when some of this stuff happens to go through, if we're still fighting that fight a couple of years from now? Uh, what can be done to try to curtail that? Well, one thing I want to emphasize to the people of the state of Alabama, the best way to evaluate what a candidate is going to do is by looking at what a candidate has done. When it comes to the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, I am very consistent That provision in the Bill of Rights is ranked as number two out of the ten in the Bill of Rights Mm -hmm. because it is the most important provision in protecting all other citizens' rights and in protecting the United States Constitution. The right to bear arms emphasizes that we're serious in America about liberty, about freedom, about our country's destiny being controlled by the will of American voters. And it's that Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms that enables us to defend our republic and defend our rights should the central government ever become dictatorial. Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind that the people who wrote the United States Constitution had just gotten through fighting a revolutionary war that lasted roughly seven years, seven years, with a lot of American lives lost, well into the thousands. I don't remember the exact number, but it's up there, okay? And it was fought to prevent Americans from being subjects of dictatorial power. In this case, the monarchy of England. Mm -hmm. So the Second Amendment is there for a big purpose. I hate it when people misuse the Second Amendment and engage in the kinds of things that we saw in Georgia or in Colorado recently or on a ball field with congressmen uh, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. But the Second Amendment has a function, and you have to weigh the benefits and the costs associated with that function, and protecting our republic is essential, so I'm going to support it. And that's where voters can look at my track record in the past, figure out what I'm going to do in the future, And I have, over a 10-year period of time, a straight-A record with both the Gun Owners of America and the National Rifle Association, both of which evaluate each congressman and each senator's 
votes and other things that are related to the Second Amendment. Well, one other thing that I wanted to ask, because it's going to be incredibly important uh, as, as we're coming up, because if you were to win this race, win the primary, win the Senate, and you became one of the senators from, from the state of Alabama, if that were to take place, it would be in Senator Harris's first or second, or uh, sorry, President Harris's first or second year, I'm guessing, uh, if, if it comes to that. If that does take place, um, what could you as the Senate do if, if we're still at that 50-50 um, and, and it just preserves where it is? Like, what, what function can you play in trying to stop their agenda from getting through? When you're a United States Senator, you basically have two powers. You have your vote. And that vote can be reflected on the Senate floor or it can be reflected in preliminary matters such as holds that you can place on ratification of nominees to the judiciary or to the executive branch for appointments, holds you might can place on treaties or on individual bills. Mm -hmm. So that's one set of powers that you have as a United States Senator, and I will use them as best I can to defend and promote the foundational principles that have made us the greatest nation in world history. The Second Amendment right to bear arms is one of those principles. Right. The second power you have is persuading the public of the righteousness of the cause, the position that you hold, in hopes that the public will figure out, hey, that guy's right, my senator's wrong, I need to contact my senator and get them on the right path. So you can affect public policy with your vote of procedural mechanisms that are permitted in the Senate, and you can affect public opinion by the statements that you make publicly, the people you communicate pub with publicly, which in turn can ultimately affect the votes and actions and conduct of other United States senators. Well, so and, I'm going to just, use both of those as best I can. Yeah, and just speaking from my opinion, um, I appreciate that you make it a point to do that even in the House right now because as much as I love Gary Palmer, the guy's not in front of the camera very often. I've always appreciated your ability to stand in front of the camera and not just make the right vote, but make the case for why your vote is the correct one. Well, so, thank you. So I very much uh, wish you good luck and appreciate you taking some time to be with us here in the audience. Mo Brooks, District 5 of Alabama, running for Senate for the seat that's going to be vacated by Senator Richard Shelby. Thanks so much for being with us, Congressman. MoBrooks.com. That's right. <laughs> that's the place yeah, to go. Yeah, got to plug that. Yeah, if you want to support, donate, anything like if that. If you want to make to a there. contribution, if you want to be a volunteer, please go to MoBrooks.com. That's right. three times. <laughs> Hopefully that's the that's the charm. I'm sure it'll stick with my audience. And if right. not, you can rewind it and watch it again. All right. MoBrooks.com. Right. Thank you so much, Congressman Brooks. We'll see you later. My pleasure. Thank you. Yep. And welcome back, everybody. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Congressman Mo Brooks, who of course is running for the Senate. And if you do want to donate, like we just said in that clip, MoBrooks.com, that would be the place to do that. So, you know, just looking at this sort of from a trying to be as objective as possible, I'm going to tell you where I think his, his chances are, because I like him as a candidate. He's incredibly conservative. You just heard all of the, the policy positions there on things like gun control and, and so on and so forth. He mentioned, I think, very briefly, H.R. Uh, 1. So, you know, as far as the conservative principles go, there's very, very little I disagree with Mo Brooks on, but looking at it from a purely practical standpoint, trying to evaluate that, I still think he's got a pretty good shot, and I think he has a better shot than he did last time 
with all the drama that was going on between him and Luther Strange and Roy Moore. Now, it's still an uphill battle, because he is still going to be fighting that establishment wing of the Republican Party, just like he did last time. Last time, he was fighting against millions of dollars that Mitch McConnell sunk into that to try to make sure that Luther Strange beat him and wound up in the runoff so that he could defeat Roy Moore. Like, that, that, that was the strategy. And instead of promoting his candidate, or even going after Roy Moore, he decided that the best and most effective way to do that would be to go after Congressman Brooks. And, and so he spent millions of dollars on attack ads specifically targeting him. It would not at all surprise me to see exactly the same thing happen this time. In fact, there has not Mitch McConnell's organizations, or at least not so far as we know, there have already been organizations that have launched attacks on that, trying to say that Mo Brooks is not really a conservative and a charlatan, which is a difficult, very difficult case to make if you actually know anything about him or his voting record, but there are people that will buy into that because they don't really research it. So the question is, do I think that he's got a chance? I think he's in a much better position for two reasons. First of all, he doesn't have all of that drama going on in the background that he has to deal with now with Luther Strange and the whole, like, him being appointed by the LoveGov thing and the, the idea that that could be corrupt. He doesn't have the issues of going up against Roy Moore, who, Roy Moore, love him or hate him, he is a very polarizing figure. He's kind of Trumpian in that sense that he has, you know, roughly 15 to 20 percent of the state of Alabama that just loves and adores Roy Moore and would follow him to the very gates of hell. Again, you may not be that person, you may not like it, but you have to admit he does have those people in the state of Alabama, and if Roy Moore's running for anything, they're voting for him and don't care who else runs. And so that's a difficult hurdle to overcome, but it doesn't look like Roy Moore has any interest in running this time, at least not so far as we know. And, of course, Big Luther's out of the picture as well. So he just doesn't have that to compete with anymore. And the, the second part of that, the other reason why I think he's got a pretty decent shot, is because it's very, very hard to make the, the proposition to people now that he's anti-Trump, because any of the, the Trump fans... One of the things that they were watching very closely was the whole thing with the election. And whose face did they see on there over and over again? Who did they see speaking right beside Trump at rallies? Who did they see? It was Mo Brooks. And it's kind of hard to make the case that now that Trump has endorsed Mo Brooks not once, but twice, it's kind of hard to make that case that he's an anti-Trumper. Now, remember, I was anti-Trump, didn't vote for him in the first election. In fact, Mo Brooks is more pro-Trump than I am. So I don't even see that as the kiss of death, but I'm telling you, it's going to be pretty difficult to make that case when anybody that's researching Mo Brooks can just go on YouTube and see Mo Brooks talking about him, can see Mo Brooks at a rally, speaking before and after the president, depending on which, which one you're looking up. It's going to be difficult for people to make that case, and that was their primary line of attack last time. They have taken the greatest weapon that they could use against Mo Brooks basically out of their hands. I, I wouldn't say that it's gone completely, but it's much less effective, I think, this run than it is going to be like it was last time. So now the question is, who is he going to have to compete against? There are rumors, and I don't know if they're true or not, and frankly, if you, if you put a gun to my head and ask me whether or not this is going to come to pass, I would say no. But there are rumors that Jeff Sessions is going to run again, and instead of taking his old seat, which now is occupied by Tommy Tuberville, he's going to try to take Senator Shelby's seat. I don't, I don't see that happening. 
I mean, for one, there's the time concern. Now, Jeff Sessions isn't that much older. He'd only be two years older when taking office. So I don't think the age thing is as much a big deal. I I can't see Jeff Sessions being like, oh yeah, I'm definitely up for this two years ago, but two years in the future, oh no, I'm, I'm getting too old. I can't. I, I don't see that happening. But I think the whole reason that Jeff Sessions ran for Senate in the first place instead of just riding off into the sunset is, A, because I think he really believed that he could do a lot of good, and I have a ton of respect for Jeff Sessions. In fact, I voted for him in that Republican primary. Uh, I don't have anything against Senator Sessions. I'm not anti-Sessions by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that one of the reasons that he ran, other than the fact that he just thought he could do some good in the Senate like he did before, is because he didn't want his lasting legacy or the way that the people of Alabama to remember him is the embattled AG that Trump turned on and threw out of the White House staff. And granted, for somebody that served the state as honorably as he did, that's a rough way to end your political career. And I do genuinely feel for Jeff Sessions on that. And I think that part of the reason he wanted his old Senate seat back is so that there would be something else to his legacy, at least that wouldn't be the sour note that he ended his political career on. I don't know that that motivation is as much there anymore, and I think that Jeff Sessions may want to stave off having to lose yet another Senate race. And so I personally doubt that Sessions is going to throw his hat in the ring. Maybe I'm wrong. Could be. Would not be the first time. But I just don't see that happening. But if he did jump into the race, that would be a big hurdle. Jeff Sessions has nearly universal name recognition. Mo Brooks has pretty good name recognition in the north part of Alabama and not much else. I mean, real conservatives that pay attention to this stuff and are watching day in and day out and could name pretty much all of the Alabama delegation, those people are out there. I'm one of them. But we're like maybe 1% of the entire population. I tell people all the time, if you listen to talk radio or spend more than, you know, 20 minutes a week, watching news, you are in the extreme minority. And that's sad, but you're one of the most well-informed people in the population if you just watch 20 minutes of news a week. And sure, that's unfortunate, but my point in all of that is, Mo Brooks is very famous and very well-liked in certain circles, but Jeff Sessions is much more universally known, and so if he jumps in the race, that's going to be a big hurdle. I think that it's certainly a, a, a hurdle that you can surmount. Tommy Turbeville kind of proved that. But it's going to be much more of a challenge if Sessions throws his hat in. I don't think that'll happen, but it could. Now, the bigger and more realistic threat, if you ask me, is John Merrill. John Merrill is the Secretary of State right now. And he's a great guy. Fantastic. Fit friend of the program. He's been on here way more than, than Mo Brooks has, you know, partly because he's a statewide official, whereas Mo Brooks up until now has only represented the, the District 5 of Alabama. But Mo Brooks has been on this program a lot, especially when talking about the election fraud thing. And, and because he is a Secretary of State and deals very directly with that kind of stuff, John Merrill, you know, probably going to be a difficult opponent for Mo Brooks to overtake. But the truth is, as much as I love John Merrill, as much as I'd love to have him as a senator, he was literally my first choice in the last Senate run. You know, when it was Sessions and Tubbs and, and all the other guys and Arnold Mooney, who I like but didn't have much of a chance. When it was between all of those guys, the person that I most wanted to win 
was John Merrill. And so if it were a choice between John Merrill and Mo Brooks, I would still pick Mo Brooks. But dang it, that, that's like having to choose between, uh, you know, Reese's Blizzards or Butterfinger Blizzards. Well, well there ain't a bad selection there. You're going to get something pretty awesome regardless of what you pick. And so it's more of a choice of, let me pick the best out of these really good choices. Which, by the way, is very refreshing in politics. Is Usually the option is, that's those are my choices. I'm going mm, to pick the one that I hate the least. So it's nice in this primary to have two options that are actually pretty good. And I think John Merrill would make a fantastic senator. But here's the thing. Mo Brooks has been in Congress. He has legislative experience that John Merrill just doesn't. And I wish, and I mean this sincerely, I wish that every bureaucrat at the state level, at the local level, were like John Merrill. The, the guy's a fantastic administrator, uh, as far as like any kind of executive constitutional office, I would trust him with any of them. I mean, he's fantastic in his role as a Secretary of State, but I would trust him in, in just about any of the constitutional offices for the state of Alabama. I'd, I'd think that he'd be fantastic in the cabinet of a Republican president. And we don't have that right now, but if there were one, yeah, I, I would say John Merrill would be really good at that. And I think, like I said, he'd be good as a senator. But he doesn't have the legislative, the legislative experience that Mo Brooks does. And I think Merrill really is a, a better administrator. I, I don't know that he has that kind of creativity that it takes to... You know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. And, and John Merrill has a, a chance to prove me wrong. And he has a standing invitation anytime he wants to come on to talk about his campaign if he winds up running. Now, he hasn't announced that he's running yet. I suspect that he will. But if that happens, he has a standing invitation. He is welcome to my microphone anytime he wants, just like Mo Brooks is. So I'm, I'm not going to play favorites on that. I may have one that I like better than the other, but you know, if he wants to talk to you, the audience, that's perfectly okay with me. But John Merrill, I think, is going to pose the biggest threat. But if this race does come down to a choice between John Merrill and Mo Brooks, I'm going to pull for one or the other. But I'm good with that regardless of who wins. I, I will be ecstatic regardless of who winds up as our senator if that does take place. So it's a, a really good position to be in for the state of Alabama, especially considering it wasn't that long ago that Alabama, arguably the reddest state in the nation, was represented by a Democrat. So this would be a, a vast improvement over that regardless. So one other thing happened the other day in with Mo Brooks. And this has less to do with the issues of the day, and it's more of a look back. It was a story that he told, but he actually gave a speech at the Montgomery Country Club. He did a little meet and greet here over lunch, and uh, it was a pretty good story. It was the story of how he actually wound up involved in the Capital City shooting at the baseball field, and he does that, and then he answers some questions by the audience, so I figured I'd go ahead and play that. This is Mo Brooks at the Montgomery Country Club. Uh, to give you a little bit of the story as to how serious this is, we play in the Washington Nationals baseball stadium. We'll typically have a non-COVID year, 20 to 30,000 people will show up. It raises over a million dollars for various charities uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, particularly with respect to uh, kids. And I have played either right field or, uh, now I play first base. And so the story of it is 
the time that we were attacked by an assassin, a socialist assassin. He was a Bernie Sanders fan on the baseball field. And I was in uh, left field, and for some reason I decided, eh, I'm going to go ahead and go in and, and get my batting practice in. Normally I shag balls because I'm a so-so hitter, but I was a gold glove kind of field. Um, all City, Christian High School, uh, didn't make an error uh, for two years. And so I had a lot of pride in my glove, not so much pride in my back. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know, I went all around in that, that regard. <laughs> and so I decided to go in, which is earlier, because normally I'm shagging balls, trying to get the practice in, and left field all the way until batting practice ends. So I run in, and it's about my time to bat. I've got two bats in my hands. Uh, home plate is, say, right about where this table is. There's a batting cage around it. And the bottom batting cage has plastic so, to help with visibility. So it's a, it's a dark plastic. And I'm sitting here getting worried to, uh, to get into the cage because I'm uh, next to bat on the third base side. Uh, Rodney Davis, a congressman from uh, Illinois, he's the one that's actually hitting. And then there's a gentleman on the mound who went to University of North Alabama. He's one of our staffers. He's doing the pitching. He also happened to play uh, NFL football a little bit as a punter. And all of a sudden I hear this blam. And you know, I'm thinking, man, car back car or something like that. And then all of a sudden, bedlam breaks loose. And you hear people shouting, shooter, shooter, shooter. And I turn around with my two bats, and I see this gun start to poke through, the barrel of it poke through the chain link fence. Um, and then right after that, I see the shooter. And I'm about maybe from here to the, that corner over there, away from the shooter guy. And he's focused towards third base and second base. He's not really looking towards home play behind him. And I'm stunned for about half a second. And then I realize if he just shifts his aim just a little bit and looks over where I am, you know, I'm kind of a sitting duck. This isn't a good place to be. At first, I wasn't the closest person to him. The guy at third base was the closest person to him. And so I decide I got to get out of here. So I drop the two bats and I run around the batting cage and hit the deck on the other side. And there were two or three other uh, congressmen or senators who were lying on the ground next to me. We're kind of lined up, okay? Now, the batting cage gives you no protection because it's just plastic, but you can't see it. And we hear the gunfire just erupting as he's shooting just as fast as he can at uh, Republican congressmen and senators. And some of us were staffers. He didn't realize that at the time. Um, and then it occurs to us, you know, this guy goes around towards the third base dugout and, and walks to home plate. We're lying on the ground, maybe from here to right there, and there's no way he can miss us. So uh, we collectively or individually, I'm not sure exactly how it transpired, uh, we decide to uh, get up and run for the first base dugout, which is about this far on the ground. Now let me mention something. Last thing I saw before I started eating dirt uh, behind home plate was Steve Scalise getting hit. Okay, and he's, he goes down, and there's some hollering about uh, getting hit. I don't remember the exact words. Um, and everybody who's in the field, of course, is stirring around. Now, if I'd been in left field, as I normally would have been, that'd be a real bad place to be. Because I had to go right across the line of fire in order to get to the first base dugout or to get through the only exit, which was the gate uh, at the first base dugout. And so the four of us decide to run into the dugout. And, you know, it's not that far of a sprint, again, about from here to the bar over there. And 
I'm, I'm the guy who's in last, so that's not the best place to be if you're, because you're going to draw attention. The first guy draws attention to uh, the movement. And so the guy is uh, shooting away, and we all dive into the dugout. I mean, we're literally diving like a swimming pool, uh, face first. And we get into the dugout, and I'm trying to analyze what I can do to minimize risk. And I'm thinking, well, the only exit is that gate. And somehow or another, he gets into the ball field. That's the only way out. So I'm crawling over bodies, and I'm getting to the uh, steps right next to that gate. So if things really go bad, I can at least have a chance and get out. And I'm lying there. Uh, next to me is Senator Jeff Blake, right here. And then we've got uh, Roger Williams, our coach, is right here. He's a congressman from Texas. And all of a sudden, this body comes flying across. And I'm, you know, I see the guy's leg and said, hey, dude, you've been shot. You've been hit. Um, and he goes, it's okay, it's okay. I said, no, you've been hit. So I take off my belt and I, and I hand it over to him. He's lying on top of me. Um, Jeff Blake and Roger Williams trying to find a place to lie down because, you know, there's not a place on the, on the floor of that dugout. And ultimately, my belt is used to put on a tourniquet. So they uh, staunch us bleeding. But he got shot right through the cap. He happened to be in far right field. And he was drawing fire while we were moving around getting into the dugout. Okay? That's where the guy was shooting at at that time. Because he's he was on the ground on the infield, dragging himself into right field, trying to get away from the shooter. And everybody else by this time had pretty much cleared the, the, the field. They were either gone through the gate and hiding behind trees or garbage cans or what have you, or they're in the first base dugout. So we get the uh, tourniquet, and I don't remember uh, how the tourniquet got on it uh, with my belt, but the tourniquet's on there. And uh, then I roll over, and we're kind of eating dirt because we're trying to stay low so no bullets or shrapnel can hit us. And then all of a sudden, bam! Loud noise. I mean, real loud. I'm going, oh my goodness, in a second shooter. Because it's coming from a different direction. And so I roll over, Capitol Police. He was using our center block dugout as a screen as he started to return fire. But at first, you can imagine the, the thoughts that go through your mind that there's a second shooter. What are you going to do now? Okay? Because they've got a guy over there with a long rifle, and you got to blam it. That, see, I'm right here, the gun is about here. That's why I was so loud. I was directly below the gun that was fired as he's going around the dugout using the concrete as a screen. And so that gunfire goes back and forth. Um, he's screaming at us to stay down, which is a pretty easy thing to do under those circumstances. And that's what we do, and we're there for about five or six minutes, uh, over 150 bullets were fired during this, this event. And we know Steve Police has been hit. We know the the guy who jumped over us has been hit. We don't know about other people. Uh, but ultimately, the shooter does go around the third base dugout. And ultimately, he was trying to position himself where he could shoot down into the first base, excuse me, goes past the third base dugout towards home plate, He's trying to position himself behind home plate where he could shoot down our dugout. And uh, we wouldn't have the kind of protection, particularly me, who was on the far end, where it could be the most visible. And about that time, you hear 
Shooter down. Shooter down. And I'll never forget that. And what happened during this thing, and I couldn't see it all because I was eating dirt in the dugout, is one of our Capitol Police officers over where the police vehicle was behind the first base dugout had been hit. Uh, she had been hit in the ankle and it was pretty bad as she was down. We had a lobbyist who was helping to sponsor the congressional baseball game. You know, that's you know, money that's needed for the charities. Uh, he'd been hit and the bullet had lodged within fractions of an inch from his heart. So he was in real bad shape, okay? Um, as was the Capitol Police officer. I think she'd been hit not only in the leg and the ankle and it disabled her, but also in the torso, but I don't remember the, the details of that right off the end. And then the Capitol Police officer who was right above me firing back, he also had a wound, but it was a, a ricochet type wound, so it wasn't as bad, but it meant that he had to hobble wherever he was going. Um, after the shooter down cry goes out, some of us run out to Steve's police, and there are blood marks, like here's a mark, about this long, then there's another one, about this long, then there's another one, for about 20 yards, as he's pulling himself, towards right here. He had been hit in the hip, and the bullet, when it hit the hip on one side, then went into a conical shape and went right through to the other hip, and in that conical shape, and all the, the bone fragments and the bullet fragments did just tremendous damage uh, to him. Fortunately, we had a congressman by the name of Brad Winster, um, and there's a story about how he got elected which is kind of interesting, which can tell you a lot about politics. And if you don't mind me diverting, I'm divert for a moment to that. We had a lady from Ohio who loved to be on national TV, a congresswoman who was a Republican. And even when it was Barack Obama coming down the aisle on the State of the Union address into the House floor, she loved being right on that aisle. And it was first come, first serve, because she reserved that seat early in the day. And Barack Obama would come down and she would act like she was best buddies with Barack Obama, okay, for the liberal Democrat, not really what Republicans associated with. And Brad Winston got elected because she liked to get that media coverage with wherever the president was coming down the aisle. As you can imagine, he used that Republican primary and beat her, okay? And we don't need to be friends with our political foes. We need to be stopping what they're trying to do, in this case, socialized medicine. And he had to get combat surgery on our baseball team. So we got to Steve's release and he instructed me to do what I never would have done. To put pressure on the wound, because you know, I don't want to make it worse. But I, he gave me uh, something, I put pressure on the wound, finally the medic showed up. And fortunately, Steve's release was able to survive. Fortunately, the lobbyist who was shot in the chest was able to survive. Our Capitol Police officers were able to survive. Matthew Barr, he's got a real good story with a bullet hole star through his leg. Uh, he was probably in his early 20s, and he can tell that the rest of his lifetime. But the conclusion to the story is this, and you're like, Randy Washington National Space Law Center. <laughs> of course, the Democrats are going to beat us again, as they are wont to do with Senator Richmond on the mound. Uh, but we put in each police for symbolic reasons. And we put him in his second pitch. He was only going to be in for one pitch. Well, the first batter of the Democrat hits Grandma. 
Steve's at second base. He's got almost no mobility. Okay, he can maybe go from here to here or from here to here because the damage is going to Now he's much better now, but this was a year later. He's had lots of surgeries, and the ball's right there. He gets it. He's on a knee. He throws it first for I. I'm going, oh my goodness, <laughs> I better catch this ball. <laughs> I've never had so much pressure on me in athletics, I think, that making sure I caught that ball at first base. But we caught it, and the batter was out. Okay? You can imagine the joy of wanting to see Scully as a second base. Now, with that, we kept him in for another batter, and this guy hit the ball four feet away from him, and he couldn't get it. That's what it was But uh, that's the camaraderie that we have amongst Republicans. One of the nice things about being in the United States Congress is being able to play real baseball, okay? Not this softball stuff, which probably have to be a lot better, right? I can hit those balls. Um, not slow pitch baseball, but real speed. So that's a little story for you. I know it's not uh, public policy or, or political in nature, uh, but I was told to give a story. So I gave one that uh, you might not have heard of firsthand. And now at this point, I'm more than happy to chat with you about anything y'all want to bring up. Any questions you may have, any comments. It's a pretty volatile environment in Washington, D.C., as you can imagine. I've never feared for our country more than I fear for it right now in my entire lifetime because of the policies that these guys are doing that are going to undermine what we stand for. They want to make sure. Yes. There's a lot of attention right now on some legislation. It's in the Senate. It's actually on the Senate. Yeah, it is the Voter Fraud Enhancement Act. Okay? That's what we call it. They masquerade as a voting rights bill. And we've got a real bad disagreement on the perception of this thing and the way the media handles it. The media really needs to start focusing on how we want everyone to vote who is a lawful citizen and eligible to vote to vote. Okay? That's the difference between us and the other side. The other side wants everybody to vote. Okay? I'm serious. If you're in the United States, illegal alien, uh, lawfully here but a non-citizen, they want you to vote. Now, you may ask, well, come on now. How do you know that? Well, because that's what they do. There are about a dozen cities now that are controlled by Democrats where anybody can vote. San Francisco being the biggest one. If you are an illegal alien, you get to register vote and vote. Legally. Okay? Because that's what their municipal ordinance says. If you're a lawful non-citizen, you get to register to vote. Now, to me, that's taking away from American citizens our own governments. But that is what's happening. And HR1 makes it illegal to require photo identification, which really stops a lot of voter fraud. You know, we have it for a lot of other things to stop fraud, right? Well, the destiny of our country is dependent upon our citizenry, lawful residents who are, can lawfully register vote and lawfully vote, determining our destiny through their vote. And voter ID, to me, is something that we ought to have. And that shouldn't be a big deal because there's so many different ways you can get voter ID. Um, another thing that it does is it calls for registration of 16 and 17 year olds. 
Now, that can be a problem. Another thing it does is automatically registers you according to various government databases. Well, here's the problem. On one government database, I might be Morris Jackson Brooks Jr. On another government database, I might be Morris J. Brooks. On another government database, I might be Morris J. Brooks Jr. On another database, I might just be Mo Brooks. So I might be registered four different times under this bill. That's a problem. Another thing it does is same day registration, where someone comes to the polling place and demands to vote, you have to register them right there. It's basically just giving them a ballot. And there's no capability on the part of these poll workers to determine whether this is an American citizen who is lawfully entitled to vote. Okay, you don't have the capability, the time in which to verify that kind of stuff. Another problem with this legislation is that it becomes a prosecutable offense if you as a poll worker contest somebody's effort to go vote. Okay, now think about that. And that really, I mean, if you're a poll worker and you're kind of doing this for minimal pay, are you going to contest anybody at the risk of going to jail? If you're wrong, if you make inquiry? So HR1 is horrible and we have to stop it. And let's pray in the Senate that they don't abolish the bill budget because if they do, that's one of two things that can make us socialists long term. There's nothing we can do about it. The other one is, um, Joe Biden completing his campaign promise of giving amnesty and citizenship to every illegal in the United States, every illegal in America, okay? Uh, like it or not, and I can understand why they want to flee the countries they're in, I get that, uh, but households that have an illegal alien in them are far more likely to be on welfare than any other kind of household. That is a made-for-Democrat vote. People want to vote for a living. And that's why, uh, to a large degree, um, Joe Biden on October 22nd at the nationally televised debate in Nashville, Tennessee, that I'm going to give Ariel, he didn't use the word or phrase illegal alien, but that's the U.S. code definition, by the way. Okay, that's what the law says the name is. Um, I'm going to give them all amnesty and citizenship. He was promising and inducing illegal aliens to turn out in mass numbers in our election. In my judgment, not counting that additional inducement, probably about 900,000 1.7 million non-citizens voted in this election. Somewhere in that ballpark, it could be more. It's almost impossible to know for sure because we don't even know how many illegal aliens are in America. Could it be 11 million, 2010 census, which was a guess by the way, okay? And the Census Bureau will tell you that, but we had an estimate to some degree. It could be up to 23 million, which is what a Yale study came up with uh, two or three years ago. We don't know. We're totally overwhelmed. I'm sorry, that was one question, long answer. Uh, next comment or question, yes sir. Isn't it uh, up to the states to make their own election laws and not the federal government to do that? And if they did do that, wouldn't it be a violation of the Constitution? Uh, and do we, could we, uh, under the Tenth Amendment, nullify such a uh, law? There, there are a lot of people who believe that, but that is not what the Constitution says. If you look at Article 1, Section 4, it it's one sentence long of the Constitution, and I'm not going to have it all verbatim, but the gist of it is at the very beginning it says state legislatures shall determine the times, places, and manner of elections. Times, places, and manner. 
But if you go all the way through that sense, at the bottom it says Congress. Okay, so we can trump state legislatures under the election clause. Uh, and that's what HR 1 uh, seeks to do, where we have federalized our elections. Most importantly, there is nobody else that is authorized in the United States Constitution to make election laws affecting times, places, and manner of those elections. And that was a major problem with the elections this year, is you had judges, they're not legislators, they're not congressmen, you had secretaries of state, they're not judges, they're not congressmen, you had all sorts of other election officials doing things that affected the time, place, and manner of elections. So in my judgment, we had tens of millions of votes that were illegally cast in violation of Article 1, Section 4. So these mass mail-out uh, ballot schemes, um, those violated state law, and often they were put into place without the state legislature approving it or Congress approving it. Tens of millions of people. Georgia, that's all illegal. That was a scheme put together by Stacey Abrams, plus the Secretary of State, plus a judge who ratified a settlement agreement. Well, I'm sorry, but if you want to change the times, places, and manner, and you're gonna obey the United States Constitution, you do it through the legislature or through Congress, if you're gonna follow, again, the United States Constitution. Hopefully our legislatures, by the way, will act on it. Our job in Congress is to prevent H.R. 1 from passing where we federalize all this stuff. But we need our legislatures to clean up the act, and quite frankly, I wish in Pennsylvania they didn't teach a bunch of Supreme Court justices who flagrantly violated the United States Constitution and have gotten away with it today. I will add one other uh, comment. We did get a, a judicial opinion, a court order, last week, maybe two weeks ago, in Michigan, kind of late, but the Michigan court said our Secretary of State violated Michigan law by imposing these laxer standards on the assistance of absentee ballots. Well, you can't change anything now, but we do have at least one judge in Michigan who has ruled that what was done by their Secretary of State in accepting all these questionable ballots was illegal. Yes, ma'am. In Georgia, how did Stacey Abrams get the Secretary of State to go along with her? Opposing parties on I don't know. Uh, I'll give you my best guess. We're talking about a COVID 19 situation. Okay, where there is concern about uh, the communicable and deadly threat of COVID 19. And you've got him just getting badgered so much, he, he didn't want to spend all his time in court, but he just said, okay, we'll work out something very many did. And I don't think he thought it through. I don't think he thought of the consequences of his conduct. And Jody Heinz, a very good friend of mine in the United States Congress, who's also a member of the House Training Caucus, I'm a founder of the House Training Caucus, along with about a dozen or so others. Um, Jody Heinz announced his candidacy for Secretary of State this week. And President Donald Trump, surprisingly, right, has endorsed Jody Heights. <laughs> Go Jody. Jody made an excellent Secretary of State. Excellent Secretary of State. So I hope he does prepare. Now, do I have time for one more? Is that it, Tiffany? You can do a really short answer. Oh, man, that's fine. All right. Any other questions or comments? I have time for one more before I go to do a radio talk, talk show. Uh, 
with, uh, is it Dan Morris that we're doing it this time? Okay, Dan Morris. Any other questions, comments? If not, thank you so much for being here. Uh, please, this is your republic, and we're at risk of losing it if we don't fight back in elections. I have to say that. Why you come after me again? Fight back in elections for your republic that so many of our ancestors have fought for and often died giving their lives for. And if we don't do the same thing in the political arena, I assure you the socialists are working hard and they're the exact opposite of liberty and freedom. Exact opposite of liberty and freedom. Socialism is by its very nature dictatorial where the government is telling you more and more how to conduct your lives. So if you love COVID-19 and the restrictions we're under, you would love dictatorial socialism because they will expand them. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. Hey everybody, it's Caleb here, and I'm just driving close to Montevallo, Alabama today, but I've had a lot of people ask me about the three maxims of tactics. Speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So I thought I might elaborate on one of them since I have had people asking me for a little more explanation on what those really mean. Now the first one, speech isn't violence, it's actually kind of making two statements. Because of course it is saying that speech, in other words the rhetoric in which we engage with one another, is not violence. We can disagree with one another, we can be passionate about our side of the argument, but that doesn't necessarily equate to violence. And even when somebody says something that you really dislike, that really bothers you or offends you, you know, is, even if they say something that is morally incorrect, it's still not violence. That's the first message that is conveyed by this. But the second part is just as important, maybe even more so, and that is that violence isn't speech. Because it's saying that these two things are not equal, that they are not the same. And so while it's saying speech isn't violence, in other words, the things that you say to a person, even if they are really hurtful, they're still not the same as violence and should not be treated as such. The inverse of that is that violence is also not speech. And I think that this is incredibly appropriate considering what just happened in the Capitol over the past few days. We have to always remember that even though you feel justified or feel that somebody else has done something wrong, that still doesn't justify violence. And, and really it's saying the same message. Because as horrible as some of the things that some people have done, unless they bring harm to another individual, no matter what it is that they've said, no matter what their political ideology is, it still doesn't elevate to the level of violence. And this is actually being recorded on Dr. Martin Luther King Day, so I think that this is incredibly appropriate. This is the guy who started the nonviolence movement. It was his idea. He was the one that did it the best. Did you know that Dr. King made every single person that marched with him sign a pledge that they committed themselves that they would not, no matter what, engage in violence. And he made sure that all of them signed this before they would march with him because he knew that if they were ever tempted, if they had 
even a moment of weakness, even when people that were in power were doing real injustices to them, that they could not engage in violence because violence doesn't work. The doctrine that King preached is the same doctrine that Jesus Christ talks about in his Sermon on the Mount. That even when an enemy offends you, persecutes you, talks evil about you, you turn the other cheek. You don't engage in violence. Their bad action does not justify you doing evil towards them as well. Two wrongs never make a right. This is something that Dr. King understood. This is something that Jesus understood and something that Jesus taught others and his disciples, including people like Dr. King, to do. That you cannot snuff out evil with more evil. In the same way, you cannot stop violence with more violence, even when it is justified, even when it's understandable why someone would want to engage in violence, that still doesn't make it okay for you to do so unless you're acting in immediate self-defense of your life. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Both these great men and many Christians who have lived throughout the ages understood that very basic principle of the teachings of Christ that speech is not violence. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. Now you've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we've got a really great one for you today. Of course, uh, haven't had a whole lot of time because we haven't even had a show since the new president, President Joe Biden, who is the most transformational houseplant in American history. Uh, since Joe Biden has been installed in office, we have not had to do a Daily Dose of Stupid. We haven't had an episode, so I feel it is only appropriate that he gets to be the honorary subject of today's Daily Dose of stupid, and this comes on the heels, of course, of the two mass shootings that have happened just recently. The one, uh, of course, both horrible incidents, one taking place in the Atlanta metropolitan area, not too far from our own home state of Alabama, another one taking place, of course, in Boulder, Colorado. But this is the address that Joe Biden had in response to this, and so we'll take a look at a couple clips from that. Watch. While we're still waiting for more information regarding the shooter, his motive, the weapons he used, the guns, the magazines, the weapons, the modifications that apparently have taken place to those weapons that are involved here. I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common sense steps that will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again. All right, well, some real bad faulty logic there. Now, I'm going to take the obvious low-hanging fruit, and then I'm going to move on to the, the better arguments or the ones that are not really challenging to overcome, but more so... The idea that just because we used to do it or because it was the law for a long time at one point is a reason that we should enact it again, that's just stupid. I mean, for about 84 years, slavery was the law of the land. It was permissible in the United States. We don't do that. Jim Crow, for decades, was the law of the land. At one point in World War II, we were interning Japanese Americans. That was, that was okay, according to the law. 
uh, just because we did it at one point does not mean it is a good idea. Just because it was the law for an extended period of time does not make it a good idea. And so let's actually get into the meat and potatoes of what he's talking about, which is his actual rationale behind this. Um, but ultimately, I think the most revealing thing in that clip is the way that he presents it, his introduction to it. It wasn't so much that he's saying, let's go ahead and get some gun control through. What is actually far more telling is how he started out the clip. Do you, do you realize what he said there? He said, we're still waiting on details to come out about the shooting. Of course, talking about the one in Boulder, Colorado. We don't really know what's going on. We don't know what kind of gun he used. We don't know what kind of magazines he used. We don't know if this thing was illegally altered or not. We don't know whether he purchased the gun legally. But you know what we do know? We're going to go ahead and go through with gun control anyway. See, this is the funny thing that's about this, is Joe Biden is saying the quiet part out loud. And what's even more hilarious is you can tell this is a teleprompter speech. This is, what, this is not Joe Biden spitballing. He's reading this off of a teleprompter, and so the Democrats, not just Joe Biden, but this is his staff and, and people that are around him that are wanting to make these policies a reality, they're, it's pretty ballsy, but they're basically openly admitting to, yeah, really, this tragedy is just a vehicle for us to get through the gun control that we've always wanted. Because if it was about this shooting, the reaction would be, well, we'll wait, we'll look at the evidence, we'll see what comes out, and then we'll see what we can do to prevent things like this in the future. This is Joe Biden saying, literally, this is his wording, not mine. We don't have to wait one more minute, let alone another hour. I don't know why hour. It would have been, I would have gone with day if I were writing that speech. But regardless, you know, just that's a stylistic approach. But he says, we're not going to wait another minute to gather more evidence, to look at it, to see if this law would actually have any effect on whether or not this shooting would take place or, or if it would do anything to prevent these shootings. You know, Marco Rubio pointed out, and I've, I've made this point several times, but it's because it's a good one. Marco Rubio pointed out in one of the presidential debates that of the past 20 years, there has not been a single piece of gun legislation proposed that would have prevented the mass shooting that they were proposed in the wake of. In other words, the mass shooting, which was used as a rationale for, guys, we've got to pass this gun legislation right now. We have to stop these mass shootings. Not a single one had a provision in it that would have prevented the shooting that they were claiming to try to prevent in the future. And you know what happened? The Washington Post fact-checker fact-checked him, and the ranking that they gave him was a Geppetto. They went through every mass shooting of the past 20 years in which legislation was proposed afterward to prevent a mass shooting like that one in the future, and they could not find a single one where the proposed legislation would have even theoretically stopped the shooting that they were claiming they were trying to prevent in the future. And this one's no different. But now the Democrats are openly admitting to it. We don't care what the details are. We don't care what the facts are. doesn't really matter to us. We just want to push through the gun legislation that we've been trying to push through for years, and we're going to use this tragedy as an opportunity to do that. Can you imagine what would happen if Republicans were saying, yeah, we don't really need to worry about this one event in time or, or whatever. We don't really care so much about that. We're just going to try to shove through the legislation that we've had written down for years. And, you know, the facts are really not that big a deal, whether or not they lay out any kind of case for this. I mean, this is the MO. 
This is what Democrats have done the entire time, which is they try to strike when the emotions are high because they think that that's a good time to go ahead and push the legislation through as fast as possible. In fact, not only do they not wait for the details or not care what the details of a shooting are, not only that, they specifically would rather push the legislation through before the details come out. Because that's when emotions are the highest, before you know things. See, as a general rule, it's a very dumb thing for a person in an emotional fever pitch to make decisions. When you are emotional, you tend to make bad decisions. You are not being run by your logic and your reason, and you're not carefully weighing out the evidence. That's what the Democrats want. It's not a bug, it's a feature. That's part of the design. They are wanting your emotions to be high. They are wanting you to not be thinking clearly because then you're more likely to agree to the insane gun control legislation that they have proposed. That's how this works. It's not an accident that it happens to be when people are super emotional and, and traumatized by the shooting, uh, the, the nation's mourning with the people that are victims and the families of the victims of the shooting, that, that's not a mistake, that's not a happenstance, that's the way that they want it. And Joe Biden is admitting to this. But let's get to the actual underlying thing that he's talking about here, because he did make a claim there. And if that claim is correct, it's not a bad argument to make, which is, look, we've done this before. In 1994, from, from the period of 1994 to 2004, because it was a 10-year sunset clause, we in this country banned... Assault weapons. Now, granted, as I've said many times on the show, I won't go into it again, an assault weapon is an imaginary classification that pretty much just means a scary-looking gun. It mostly has to do with features that do not make a gun more deadly, things like uh, pistol grips, which, I mean, the gun fires exactly the same whether you're holding it with a pistol grip or whether you're holding it with a, a more traditional stock like this. It doesn't make you a more effective shooter. doesn't make the gun more deadly. I've done that in hundreds... <laughs> Hundreds of times now on the show throughout the years. Uh, but ultimately, that's what it boils down to. It's, it's really a scary-looking gun ban more than a deadly gun ban, but that's what it was. Uh, back in 1994 to 2004, those are the kinds of guns that they banned. So, did it actually lead to less mass shootings? Because that's what President Joe Biden just claimed. He says, look, we did it before. We did it in 1994. It was when I was a senator. And when we did that, we had less mass shootings. Is that correct? Well, let's look at the evidence, shall we? This comes from Politico, and they were doing a, a study on mass shootings and the rate of mass shootings and how frequently they occur. So this is the mass shootings per 100 million, so this, this is adjusted for population, and it goes all the way from 1976 to 2016. So that's a, that's a pretty big range. That's 40 years there. And you see, you, you may notice a trend... And by notice a trend, you may notice that there's really not a trend. I mean, it's just kind of all over the place. You'll, you'll notice a few spikes there, like, for example, uh, right around the end of, of the, the 1990s, you'll notice a, a big spike in it there. But another thing I want you to, to point out here, too, is looking at this graph, look at it, it's, it's mass shooting events per 100 million and the top of the graph, the highest it can go, which no, no year actually reaches, is three. 
And so it's important to note when looking at any statistics on mass shootings, these are insanely rare events. They are incredibly rare. I mean, like, lightning strikes level of rare. And so they get a lot of news coverage and they get a lot of press. But at the end of the day, they just don't happen all that often. And this graph kind of shows that, that even in the biggest year that we have, one mass shooting per 100 million people is about average. And so we're getting, you know, averaging between, what, two and three a year because there's 328 million people in the United States. Uh, obviously, that changes a little bit in the 40-year graph that we're looking at. But my point is, if you're looking at it adjusted for population, our rate of mass shooting stays pretty much constant because they are so rare. Now, you may have one year where there's one more mass shooting, and that makes the stats jump up a lot, but that's because these things are so rare that any little bitty thing that happens at the stats is reflected in a huge way percentage-wise. But nonetheless, if you look at that 40-year trend, stays pretty much the same. Now, let's look at the same graph with the assault weapons ban. That's the assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004. Doesn't really look any different than the other graphs, so... Joe Biden's claim that there were less mass public shootings back when the assault weapons ban was on, it's simply not true. You look at it, whether you're looking at the bars, you're looking at the amount of mass shootings we had, or you're looking at the five-year yearly average, there's just not a massive jump in mass shootings outside of that assault weapons ban or or in the you know the year or two if you, even if you give it a little grace you uh, look at the year before the year after that kind of thing there's just no discernible difference between when we had an assault weapons ban and when we didn't so joe biden is patently wrong on that the data very clearly shows that but what you will have from the left and i've actually already heard this point while talking about this today okay well the thing is it didn't actually make less mass shootings, but what happened is mass shootings got more deadly. And so you don't have more mass shootings now than you, or you, you don't, you have more, you may not have more mass shootings now than you did during the assault weapons ban, but because the assault weapons themselves are deadlier, then what happened is you have deadlier mass shootings as well. More, more people died per incident. Now, on the surface, you could say that that claim at least kind of appears to be true. Granted, there's not a drastic difference. And like I said, we're talking about numbers that are so infinitesimally small in a nation this large that it's very difficult to compare data. But this is a graphic, again, from Politico, same study, that showed the mass shootings per 100 million, and, and these are victims of mass shootings, not just the mass shooting incidents. And now what you'll see is um, after about 2006-ish, 2007, something like that, there is an uptick in mass shootings. Now, there's a couple of different reasons that this might be the case. For one, if you're looking at the incidence of mass shootings broken up as to motivation, one thing that does make a big difference is that your mass shootings after 2001 tend to be extreme Muslims. Not all of them. I'd say roughly half-ish. Maybe not even half, but a lot of your mass shooting incidents happen because of extreme Islam. And apparently they're, they're better at, at doing this because theirs tend to be pretty deadly. And so that could be a contributing factor. I'm not saying it's the only thing. I'm saying that you see a shift from before the 2000s 
where most of your mass shootings were, you know, white people, because we're a majority white country. And then you see that transition after 2000 to Arabs and, and people of, of the Muslim faith being an, you know, greatly outlier when it, a great outlier when it comes to that they they're greatly overrepresented versus how much there are in the population of mass shootings so there's that to consider but the other thing is this same study in politico uh, you can look at at other graphics that kind of attest to this uh they even said that so far as we can tell there was not a, a reason oops sorry that's the that's the next graphic uh, the same thing from politico said that they didn't find that there was any significant contributing factor of the assault weapons ban to this. From Politico, the rise in the average number of victims also raises a number of other questions about mass public shootings. Foremost among them, why have they become more deadly since the mid-2000s? It may be tempting to conclude that this increase is because of the expiration of the assault weapons ban in 2004. After all, the increase began shortly after the ban ended. But the limited research that's been done suggests it had little short-term impact on gun violence. And so that's not even just talking about gun, you know, mass shootings as events. It's talking about gun violence as a whole. And the, the research that has been done on it simply does not point to that conclusion. And, and keep in mind, Politico is not exactly red state. I mean, it's, it's not a, a right-leaning publication. And they continue on. That's probably not a popular conclusion. But the available evidence suggests that strengthening or weakening gun laws would not significantly affect the incidence or severity of mass public shootings. For example, studies examining the bans on large-capacity magazines and right-to-carry concealed firearm laws have found they would have little to no effect on mass public shootings. And one of the things that they're talking about here is state-by-state -state comparisons where there are some states like California where assault weapons have been banned since 1989, the year that I was born. So 31 years now they've had assault weapons bans, and yet, because it's a big state like Florida, like Texas, they have, an out, they have a bigger share of mass shootings. They have about the same one as states that do not have an assault weapons ban. They have about the same that don't have a magazine capacity limit. And so you do a state-by-state -state comparison, and there's just no correlation between how stricter gun control laws are and the rate of mass shootings which you have. And so that's what the data shows. Another thing to consider that would also suggest that assault weapons are not the cause of this is this graphic by Statista that looked at all of the mass shootings between 1982 and March 2021, the month we are currently in. And if you look at that, these are the types of weapons that are used in mass shootings. Now you'll notice, rounding out the bottom here, and, and I'm, I think it's actually smarter to look at number of incidents rather than number of weapons used, because you know you might have one guy who has four shotguns, uh, ten rifles, and a, a few handguns. Okay, well that's, it might help us in some things, but what, with what we're looking at, it makes more sense to just look at number of incidents. So in other words, the, the person that showed up what kind of gun did he have? Did he have multiple kinds or did he have one? This is a good thing to help us understand how many guns were used and, and what kinds of guns were used. You'll notice shotguns at the bottom with 26, rifles in second place with 48, and handguns has a commanding lead almost double what rifles have. So handguns are by far the preferred method of killing people, and, and nobody is actually talking 
about banning handguns. And another thing that I want you to notice, too, if you see that little highlighted portion there in the bottom right, rifles include non-automatic, semi-automatic, and legally uh, illegally modified rifles. And so that's another thing that you have to consider. That rifles category, despite being in second place, it isn't even talking about assault weapons. It's not talking about your AR-15s. It includes that, of course, as well. But if somebody just wants to go up there with a hunting rifle, if, if somebody commits a mass shooting with a 30-30, which has happened before, we, we've seen people use hunting rifles, which again is kind of an imaginary designation, but there are some rifles that are more commonly used for hunting at least. We see that that does take place from time to time. And so, even if you have the broad sweeping category of just all rifles as opposed to assault weapons, it's still only about half. And so the idea that banning your AR-15s and your AK-47s and every other assault rifle, that that is somehow going to curtail mass shootings or whether or not how deadly they are, I'm, I'm sorry, the data simply does not back that up. And so because of that, there's just no reason to believe anything, any part of what Joe Biden is saying here because that category includes all rifles, not just assault rifles. And here's the thing, too. This isn't even theoretical. Normally, when we're debating things about politics, there is some level of theory involved in it. For example, America has never had socialized medicine. We understand that there would be complications that would arise here that would not arise in other countries. For example, we have to pay for a military. Other countries really just kind of rely on the United States to be the police of the world, and because we make the world more secure, they don't have to worry about military expenses as much. That's wrong, but it's what they do. And so because of that, us bearing the cost of that plus universal socialized medicine would be even harder on us than other countries. We're much larger than these countries and more diverse, which creates other problems when you're talking about creating a healthcare industry that is run by the government. And so there are several reasons why that would be a problem, but we don't know that for sure. This is kind of dealing in the realm of theory to a degree. We can point to data that, you know, deductively increases the likelihood of our conclusion, but we've never actually tried socialized medicine in America, so we can't say that with absolute certainty. This is not that. We tried it for a decade. It had no effect whatsoever. So not only is Biden advocating for a policy that doesn't do anything, we know for a fact this isn't even theory. We don't even have to say it probably wouldn't work. We know it won't work because we already did it and it had no effect at all. He's advocating for a failed policy that all the data points in the direction of it having no effect on gun violence in the form of mass shootings or gun crimes in general. He's simply wanting this to go through because it ideologically suits him, not because the policy actually works. And so my question on all this is, where are the fact checkers? Where is the Washington Post fact checker? Where is PolitiFact? Where is Snopes? Checking Joe Biden like they did every syllable of every word that Donald Trump uttered. I mean, you had Brian Stelter, who basically had an hour-long show every day doing nothing but fact-checking either Donald Trump or Fox News. Where are those fact-checkers now? Where are they saying, well, now, hold on, Joe Biden's actually completely wrong about that. They're not going to do it because they want this legislation to go through, and they know that saying all of this would decrease the likelihood of that happening. It's just one more example, the latest example, in a long line of media bias.
Now let's go ahead and look at one other clip and then we'll go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. This is also from that same speech made by President Biden. We can close the loopholes in our background check system, including the Charleston loophole. That's one of the best tools we have right now to prevent gun violence. The Senate should immediately pass. Let me say it again. The United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House passed bills that close loopholes in the background check system. These are bills that receive votes of both Republicans and Democrats in the House. This is not and should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives. And we have to act. We should also ban assault weapons in the process. All right. Well, as we just saw when he says it will save American lives, um, no, it won't. The data does not show that whatsoever. But let's go ahead and talk specifically about the legislation that he is advocating the Senate to pass and put on his desk so that he can sign it into law. Uh, these are the, the two bills that went through the House, and they're aimed at closing the loopholes, as he puts it. There's two loopholes here. So first of all, there's no evidence that this is going to save lives, and the reason that that is the case is because criminals tend to get their guns, wait for it, illegally. No, it, it's true. I, I know, I, I see you sitting there baffled, but there are criminals that actually don't care whether or not they get their guns illegally, because apparently, if you're willing to kill someone, you're not all that worried about, you don't have a lot of scruples about making sure you're going through the background process in the proper way to obtain your firearm. And so this is the main reason, and it, it's an easy point to make, but the data actually bears out this premise as well. If you'll go ahead and, and look at this graph here, um, this is from the Department of Justice, and what they did was they looked at different demographics inside federal and state prisons. Now, remind you, this is just looking at people that possessed a firearm at any point while they were involved in the offense for which they are serving time. So, for example, if you are a gun owner and you were embezzling money from your, your company, but you happened to own a gun while you were doing it, you're counted in the statistic, whether or not you were a violent offender or not. Now, they do have a breakdown of violent offenders, but they, they don't draw a correlation between the two, and so this is really... I get it that it's an imperfect statistic, but it's the best way that we have to measure it. Now, I want you to look at how they obtained their firearms for these criminals that, that are in federal or state prisons right now. So you see up there at the top, some were purchased at a retail source, so either they were able to pass a background check or something happened to where they were able to get it, that's 10%. And then there's also obtained from an individual, so like you had a family member or a friend. Now, that could be for completely benign purposes, so the family doesn't know that you're going to do something criminal and they buy you a gun for Christmas. But it can also be done like, you know, you're a gang member and your cousin happens to not have a record, so he goes into a gun store, buys a gun from a, a retailer of some kind or a pawn shop, and walks out and hands you the gun knowing you're a felon. And so that's a very broad, uh, you know, category. But then there's also the rented or borrowed a gun from a family or friend. And so they didn't necessarily own the gun, but they had it in their possession because they were borrowing it from a family member. So all of that, that's 25%. 
But look at the overwhelming majority here. We've got 43.2% that got it off the street in some kind of underground market. They stole it. They got it from a retail source. In other words, there was a, a guy with a, a straw purchaser that had a whole bunch of guns in the back of his van, something like that. Uh, they bought it from a family or friend, but, but they knew what they were doing was illegal. Um, some kind of unspecified theft, that's another category, or they got it from some other source. So they found it at the location of a, a crime, they see a gun, so they just pick it up while they're committing some other kind of crime. So you can see that there's a lot of different methods for that. And ultimately, what that adds up to is 60% of all of the felons, and again, this is including nonviolent felonies. This is including people that are in prison for things that had nothing to do with violence. And you, even including those people, still 60% of the ones that owned guns got it through some kind of illegal means. And that would not, adding in any kind of new laws would not affect them in any shape, form, or fashion. But here's the thing. I'm 100% for closing any loopholes in the background checks. I am. Any kind of legitimate problem we're having that we're not getting the information to the database that we need to, or we're not doing background checks the way that we're supposed to, I'm foreclosing any loopholes that may exist. And if I'm made aware of any, I will certainly support tightening those up. There was a candidate, for example, for attorney general not too long ago in the state of Alabama that I supported specifically in part because of her stance on strengthening the NICS program, the, the federal database that you use to check everybody against when they purchase a firearm. She was talking about how Alabama isn't doing a great job of making sure that felons, when, when crimes are reported, are winding up in that database. And that's a really good cause. That's something that I supported. One of the reasons I like that candidate is because that was something that was a big issue for her, and I agreed with that. But let's also look at the record. Several mass shooters of late have been getting guns technically legally in the sense that you're talking about they passed a background check, but they really got it illegally because of government incompetence. We had one shooter that the Air Force just didn't basically forward over the record of violence that he had to the Knicks background check system, and so because of that, there was a, a hiccup in the system that caused him to be able to get a firearm. We had in the Parkland shooting, there were uh, incidents of violence in this young man's past, but because of a program that was put out by the Obama administration, those were basically overlooked and they were scrubbed from his record, and, because of, and they let a school, of all things, handle what should have been a law enforcement thing. And so because of that, he was able to purchase firearms there. Uh, the most recent shooter that we had just a few days ago in Atlanta, uh, there's questions about whether or not he was able to obtain his firearms legally. And, and this guy had a history of violence, and so he shouldn't have been able to get a gun. We don't know how he got one yet. I'm sure those details will come out very soon. But the point is... He had a violent history, he had a, a criminal background, and so he shouldn't have been able to get a gun either. And so, typically, what we've seen recently, especially in the case of mass shootings, is on the occasions where a mass shooter doesn't obtain their firearm illegally, where they get it through a federal licensed firearm dealer, that it's because of government incompetence that they were able to get it. And so, it was because we weren't enforcing the laws on the books, creating new laws won't do any good if that is the case. If they can pass a background check because people aren't reporting things, then closing the loopholes isn't going to do us any good. And so that's the problem we actually need to be dealing with. Not what we're talking about here, and, and I'll explain why. 
none of the things that Joe Biden is talking about closing are actually loopholes. A loophole is a th basically a blind spot in the law, a way that a person can break the law without technically breaking the law or at least breaking the spirit of the law because there's something that the law overlooked. Neither of the two things that he's talking about, the two pieces of legislation, would actually do that. So first, we have the Charleston loophole, which he mentions by name in this particular uh, speech. So what they call the Charleston loophole is after three days, if your background check cannot be completed, they are forced to, by law, if, if they can't complete it in three days, to allow you to purchase a gun. Now that sounds really bad until you realize that the average time that a background check is completed by the FBI is two minutes. I have purchased several firearms. I was never there for more than five or six minutes. And the average time that these are completed on, like I said, two minutes. You usually don't need three days. Now sometimes it does take a little longer, and, and sometimes that is because they, they are missing some records or something happens in the system to where they can't complete it in three days. But here's the reason that that law was put into place when they originally instituted this back in the 90s. They knew that what the Democrats would have to do if they just wanted to make it impossible for the average person to buy guns is just make the NICS system ineffective. Just make it inefficient or to where it takes a really long time to do a background check, and then after your three days are expired, they're not, they're not required to give you the gun, and that's why they gave that three-day period. Because they're saying, look, Democrats, you've got to make the NICS system efficient and good at what it does, because if you don't, then after three days, then that time expires. All that we have to do is cut funding for it and make it to where the background checks don't come through in three days, and then perfectly law-abiding citizens that haven't done anything wrong would be denied their right to own a firearm. It would be a... See, that would actually be a loophole is where the Democrats would say, no, we, we, we just require you to get a background check. Oh, but yeah, it's a darn shame that the background check system isn't working and it didn't clear you in three days, so you can't have a firearm even though you haven't done anything wrong. See, the problem with that is it starts from the idea of guilty until proven innocent. You must prove to us that you are worthy of exercising your Second Amendment right, which is a problem that I have with it from the beginning, even though I do support background checks. But the bigger issue, and the one that really is at the root of this, is that they simply want to find ways to keep law-abiding citizens from having their firearms. Do you know of any person in involved in gun crime or any person that is a mass shooter that was able to get their firearm because of this loophole? No. Not a single one. And even if they did, it still would be a terrible idea to make it to where potentially hundreds, maybe even thousands of American citizens would be denied their right to have a firearm in order to catch maybe one bad guy. I mean, I would hate for that one bad guy to slip through, but I'd rather the one bad guy slip through and the other Americans' rights, including my own, not be violated. And so ultimately, this is what it comes down to. That, that three-day period needs to be kept in place. And frankly, since usually... The background check system happens in even less time. I really wouldn't have a problem with them even shortening it, but I'm fine with the three-day period as it is, that after three days, if they can't complete that background check, they have to actually surrender the firearm to you and, and let you purchase it. But ultimately, 
that's the the problem that I have with this is it was a way to keep gun controllers from abusing the law and making it to where regular people can't get a firearm just because they don't want them to have a firearm. That's why the three-day period is there, that if they can't complete it in that time, they've got to allow you to purchase the gun. And then finally, there's the other one that you hear talked about a lot. Joe Biden didn't mention this specifically, but that's what the other piece of legislation that he did mention is supposed to fix. It's the gun show loophole. First of all, it's very poorly named because there is no loophole at a gun show. The same laws apply at gun shows that apply everywhere else. You go to a gun show and you buy a firearm from a FFL, they have to do a background check on you. It's federal law. If they don't, they can go to prison for a very, very, very long time. That's how that works. Now, I've never personally purchased a gun at a gun show, but I've known people that have. I've seen the process take place with my own two eyeballs, and that's how it happens. If you buy from somebody like that, you do have to actually go through the process of a background check. Now, if you happen to meet some random dude at the gun show who happens to be selling a gun, but he's not a federal licensed firearm dealer, then you don't have to get a background check. And that law would be exactly the same there as it would be if you met that random person in a Walmart parking lot. There are not different laws at the gun show. The same laws are in effect there as they are anywhere else. The problem that they're having with it is, well, this is a place that people that wouldn't meet otherwise would be able to meet and, and buy their gun. Well, yeah, but that's not illegal. That's the problem. If I just meet some random person on the street who's like, hey, I've got a shotgun I want to sell you, I have the right to buy that because I'm an American citizen. And if we make it to where, because this is what this law actually does, if we make it to where every single gun purchase or gun transfer must take place with a background check, then I'm not allowed to transfer my guns even voluntarily to people in my family. You know, if my cousin wants to take one of my guns out to go hunting one weekend, I can do that. My grandfather has loaned me his hunting rifle before. That would make me a felon if we closed that and had it to where you have to transfer in Washington State. That's how you have to do it. If you want to loan your firearm to a family member, you have to go to a federal licensed firearm dealer. They have to run a background check on you. You can't even let somebody use your own gun. And that's what this law would do. I'm for background checks. I like the NIC system. I think that it, it does a lot of good. But obstructing and making it a nightmare for a gun owner, and making it virtually impossible to use the guns the way that they want to use them, and, and basically de-incentivizing even owning a firearm, that's the end game here that the Democrats are actually trying to get to. And here's the other thing. For this to be put in place, I don't believe that this actual legislation calls for this, but for this legislation to be put in place, you have to have a national gun registry. There's no other way to do it. And so I think that there are sort of baby steps towards that, but then they would fully implement it afterward because what they do is if this thing passed they'd come back and say we have no idea to know whether you did transfer your gun or not unless you're required to register them by federal law and so then they would try to implement a federal gun registry this is a a, a gateway into that and and they would be correct that this system will not function unless there is a gun registry in place they are correct in that the point is that's a good reason why this system shouldn't be put in place. It's, it's not an argument for a gun registry. It's an argument against this law and regulating the individual trade of American citizens. Um, but ultimately, Joe Biden is saying, 
in these clips what we have known all along. It's not about facts. It's not about actually helping people. It's not about preventing crime. It is about getting the legislation through. And there's a, a very wise saying that I've heard many times now, which is, if the government wants to take away your guns, then it must be because they're planning on doing something that you might shoot them for. And it's pretty sage advice. The reason that they want to disarm you is because they are afraid that what they are going to do to you to curtail your liberties might cause you to try to fire back at them. Otherwise, they have no reason to want to take away your guns. If they're not afraid of you using it against them, they have no interest in doing so. And ultimately, that's where it goes to. The Second Amendment, as much as I like hunting, as much as I like sport shooting, as much as I like just hanging out with my friends and, and shooting things, that's not what it was for. It was to preserve the liberty of the American people from a tyrannical government, be it foreign or domestic. With guns, we are citizens. Without them, we are merely serfs. Let's go to the Chaplain's Report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. The Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of 1 Kings. Now to give you some background information for the verses that we're going to read, this is an episode in the scripture about Elijah. And Elijah goes to Mount Carmel, which I know sounds like a candy store, but no, really, it is a, it is a mountain in ancient uh, Israel. So Elijah has been on the run for some time, several years at this point, because the worshipers of Baal want to snuff him out because he's against the worship of Baal. And so as a dedicated monotheist, one who worships the almighty one true God versus idols like Baal, he has been actively against Jezebel and King Ahaz, or sorry, King Ahab, for a long time now. And they've been trying to hunt him down, they've been trying to take him out, but he has not done this. And so what he does is he, he basically offers a challenge to the Baal worshippers. And this is so cool, the way that he does this. And if you understand the context of this, it makes it that much cooler. Mount Carmel was sacred to Baal. So... Because of that, because the Baal worshippers saw this mountain as sacred holy ground for the god Baal, Elijah's like, oh, I'm going to beat your god, and I'm going to do it on his home turf. So they go to Carmel, and he says, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to decide who is really God. And what I want you to do is, we're going to take an offering, and you're going to put it on your altar and stack up the wood and everything else, and what you're going to do is you're going to cry out to Baal for him to send fire from heaven to consume the offering. And they're like, yep, this, this sounds like a good plan. And so the Baal worshippers are there all day long, from, from morning to just around sunset. And they are crying out to Baal. They are literally cutting themselves and letting themselves bleed. They are screaming out. And, and he has 400 prophets of Baal, and they're on Baal's mountain, and all of this stuff is going on. Baal has every advantage here, and nothing happens for hours on end. 
And Elijah's like poking fun at him. He's like, oh, maybe, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a journey and he needs it. And so there's a lot of jeering and sort of like smack talk going on from Elijah, which I love as a sarcastic person. And then Elijah goes, all right, guys, I want you to fill up several barrels of water and dig a giant trench around my altar. And they do it. And they pour the water on there and they pour the water on there again and they pour the water on there again. And so the entire altar, the offering, everything is just drenched at this point. They said that the trough sitting around this altar would fill up several baths, which is a, a measurement in, in ancient Israel. And uh, Elijah basically just says, all right, God, send down the fire. And I mean, no, no pomp, circumstance, not everything that they've been going through with like cutting themselves and, and making fools of themselves. And, and God sends a fire so hot that it consumes the offering, the altar, and the water around it in a matter of moments. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you, know, you guys know how there's been like a drought for three years now? Yeah, God's about to send the rain, so you better get inside quick. And he does, and, and there's, it goes from basically clear skies, and it hasn't rained in Israel in three years at this point, to a torrential downpour. And so Elijah is kind of on cloud nine at this point, and why wouldn't he be? He's like, okay, I've convinced Israel to go out and kill all the prophets of Baal. There, there was a great battle there where 400 of their prophets were killed. Um, you know, God won this battle. And you can forgive Elijah for thinking that. Based on what he has just seen, he's like, okay, seriously, how could anybody not see that and think, yep, Elijah's God is definitely the real God, and, and this Baal guy, he doesn't know what he's doing because he obviously can't do what Elijah's God does. So in Elijah's mind, he just won this fight. But what actually happens afterward is that Jezebel says, I'm going to make you exactly like the prophets of Baal that you just killed. I'm coming after you even harder than before. And so Elijah has to flee for his life. He is running scared. And that's got to be an emotional roller coaster. Based on the distance between where he is at Mount Carmel and where he winds up, we think that this journey could have taken several days, even if he was you know, moving at a pretty quick place. And, and he's running for his life. So he gets to where he gets to this little cave out in the middle of nowhere, and he's exhausted, he's frustrated. He thought that he was going to be on top of the mountain at this point, and he can't figure out why, after pretty clear convincing evidence that God is definitely who he says he is and Baal is nothing. Why is it that all the Baal worshippers, at least the the ones in charge or the ones at the top, why is it that it seems like they're winning? That doesn't make any sense. I just pro provided evidence that cannot be contradicted that God is who He says He is and, and Bill has no power at all. How could this happen? And there's a really great and, and frankly kind of sweet moment between God and Elijah where Elijah's just exhausted and angry and doesn't know what he's going to do. And God, he has a very sort of dad moment here, which I love. I mean, it's just, it's a great analogy for why God calls himself our father. He's just like, all right, Elijah, go take a nap. I'm going to give you some food, and then we'll talk. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a very apparent thing to do. It's like, all right, we're not in a good mood to have this conversation right now. 
So you, you get some sleep, and then you have some breakfast, and, and we'll talk in the morning. And so that's exactly what happens. And when they do wake up the next day, uh, or when, when Elijah wakes up the next day and has this conversation with God, God takes him outside the cave to stand up on this mountain that he's on. And that's really where the passage that we're going to read starts here. So this is 1 Kings 19, 11-13. So he said, this is the Lord talking here, so he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and breaking rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? God likes to settle. He does. Always has. Men, because we are not all-powerful, and because we're inadequate, and because we're imperfect, we feel the need to show off a lot. You know whether it's the, the kid that's trying to do a backflip to impress the girl that he likes because he thinks that somehow that's going to ingratiate himself to her, or whether it's you know a general or a, a president or a king or something like that showing off the armies that he commands, whatever form that takes, uh, or showing off a, a display of weaponry, something like that, we feel like we've got to show off all the time because we know we're really, at the end of the day, we're not immortal, we're not all that powerful, we're not all that great. And so because of that, sometimes we, we puff ourselves up to make ourselves look greater than we actually are. God doesn't do that because He doesn't need to. Why, why would God do that? I mean, He's literally all-powerful. He can make anything that He wants with a thought. So why would He be concerned with showing off? And because of that, God has always liked doing things with the simple. I mean, look at Moses. He took down literally the greatest nation in all of human history up to that point with one dude and a stick. He took down the Roman Empire. He took down the Persians, the Greeks. I mean, he, he causes kingdoms to rise and fall with the simplest of things. And all through the Scripture, look at, for example, the Gospels. You had all these fake messiahs and people that were going out and performing these great deeds and magicians that would make this big show of it. And, and, and Jesus would just say to people like, yeah, get up and, and walk. And that was it. They were healed. Not a lot of ceremony. Not a lot of you know attention-getting stuff. God does that occasionally. And He does it specifically to help us in our faith. Sometimes God does bring the fire like He did on Mount Carmel. But God likes the subtle. And I think that that's the lesson we're supposed to take from this. He brings forth this wind that is so strong, it's saying that it's shaking the mountains and breaking rocks in half. That's a strong wind. I've never seen wind do that. And then an earthquake, and then a fire, and all these big, fancy, amazing feats of nature that God can make any time He wants. God's all-powerful. He can... He could literally just do that stuff constantly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week from now to the end of time, and he wouldn't lose any sense over it. Wouldn't even be a strain on him. And yet he doesn't. 
yet he chooses to come to Elijah this way. It says he wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the earthquake. It says there was a gentle blowing and then he spoke and God's voice came to Elijah. He wanted to speak to Elijah in a whisper. God likes that. He prefers to speak to us in that method. And I think that maybe not the whole reason, but part of the reason that God chooses to do it this way is because Elijah is sitting there thinking, how after everything that I've shown these people do they not believe that God is God? How do they not see it? How do they not bend the knee and worship the one and only Lord and creator of the universe, considering what I've just shown them is conclusive evidence that that's exactly who he is? And then this happens And I think the message that we're supposed to take from this is God is saying, yeah, people are going to see my wonders, but that's not why they trust me. That's not why they worship me. That's not why they treat me as God. Why did these people continue to worship Baal after seeing that kind of proof? Because they wanted to. It's just that simple. They liked living in Baal's world. They like living with the worldview that they can make God into whatever they want, and they, they have a God that doesn't judge them, and they can, I mean, how relevant does this sound to today? That they can make a judge that a God that doesn't judge them and approves of all their life choices and is on their side and is powerful and can smite the people that they don't like, whether or not they're actually just or morally correct or not. They liked Bill better. Because Bill was more like them. He was. God's not. God's not like us. He's like us in some ways, and we bear that spark of the divine, but ultimately we're not that much like God. And His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so even in the face of absolute conclusive proof, the wonders are not what inspire our faith in God. It's those that hear His voice. You see, They worship Baal because they would rather Baal actually be God. They would rather have a God that they can kind of bargain with and is is more on their level. But when you worship a holy God, you don't have that luxury. When you worship the one true and eternal God, then you have to come to Him. You have to subject yourself to Him. And that requires a change in you. That requires you to give up something of yourself. Now, God's mercy and salvation may be free, but He does have expectations and requirements that He asks of you. And most people in ancient Israel and today, they are not willing to do that. And so that's why, even in the face of incontributable evidence, that it cannot be contradicted. The people will look at God and go, eh, not, not for me. I'm good. We're fighting the same battle that ancient Israel did. It's the same choice since the beginning of time. Ultimately, we have a choice to make. And what this story really puts on display is that the people that really have faith are the ones that hear God's voice and do what he says. Not the ones that see the miracles. I mean, would it have been amazing to see Christ rise from the dead? Yeah, it would have been. 
Would it have been amazing to see him heal the lame and, and cause blind people to see? Yeah, that would have been incredible. But that's not why we follow him. We follow him because of what he said and what he taught and the way that he loves us and the mercy that he had for us. That is why we have faith. Because we see who God is and we have a relationship with him. And we seek after him because he seeks after us. And because of that voice, because of the commands, because of what we read in the Scripture and, and the teachings that He has passed on to us, we respond to that with faith. We respond to that with submission to His will and obeying Him. That's what it means to have faith. To have belief plus obedience. I mean, the devil believes in God. I'm sure these people on Mount Carmel just saw what happened. They believe in God too. They didn't have faith. So always remember that, that the ones that are actually the faith bearers, the ones that actually have faith in God, not just belief or not just knowledge about God, the ones that actually have faith are the ones that read the words of Scripture, that read God's Word, that understand His commands, and then do it. That's what it really means to have faith. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.